I want to invite you to join me in your Bible on your phone or your however you are, and it'll be behind me as well. Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians, but I want to start in the book of Acts. And so if you would join me in the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saddled a horse and all jumped on, and then Acts. There's a whole poem that you can do, but it's the fifth in the New Testament. And I, the reason I want to go there is because I'm, uh, the question that I want to begin with is, Paul, we're, we're studying a, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, um, we're, we're confident that there were likely four letters that he interacted with them and three different times that eventually he met with them face to face. He spent a lot of time in Corinth. The, the two cities that Paul was, was, was in for a, a lengthy amount of time was Ephesus and Corinth. He, he invested deeply in the city. And we're, we're looking through, we're walking and studying the, the letter that we know in our Bible as 2 Corinthians. So I wanted, I wanted us to, to just pause for a minute and ask, what do you think it was like to live in Corinth? We're, we're addressing this question in our, in, our, in our culture, in our world, right? People are making decisions of where they want to live. And for the first time in, in our history as a state, we actually lost a, 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 rep a seat in Congress because there were a number of people that said, I would like to live in blank. And so they're, they're moving, which we have the freedom to do. Well, when you're making that decision, you ask this question, what's it like to live in blank? What's it like to live in California? And if you've been outside of the state or in other parts of the world, and you've interacted with people, and they ask you, what's it like to live in California? They, have, they probably have a very different picture, a confused picture, than what it's actually like to live in California, right? I, I remember years ago, um, we were going to Utah with, with young people, and we were talking to people, oh, you're from California. And they were convinced of two things, that the entire population lived on the coast. Now, I don't think that's physically possible, but we all live on the beach, and they were sincerely convinced that everybody had a hot tub in their backyard because that was their view of the culture. And so what's it like to live in California? What was it like to live in the city of Corinth? Now, morally, it, well, let me say this. Corinth was a city of extremes. It was extremes. And on one end, you had just everything was, was okay. Everything could be done. There was no sense of, of restraint or if you wanted to do it, you did it. And any sense of, of morality or lines or boundaries just didn't exist. Now imagine that, and it's not terribly hard for us, right? If people are just free to do whatever they want to do, what that atmosphere, what that city would be like morally. And that was Corinth. In fact, it became a, a term, if you called someone a Corinthian, it didn't mean that they lived in Corinth, it meant that they were living their life just free from any kind of restraint and and care of how it would affect anybody else, and they just were going to do what they wanted to do. And they were going to literally push past any norms and boundaries that had been in place. Any of that sound familiar? Okay. So what was it like to live in Corinth? Well, morally, it was a free-for-all. It was, you know, all over the place. What about politically? Well, politically, they were under Rome. In fact, they were the capital of Achaia, this, this area. They were the headquarters, if you will, for the Roman Empire in that part of the world. And if you think of a map, 
Corinth is on that little, called an isthmus, that little point of land that sticks out from Asia Minor, and it's kind of the jumping off point to go over to Macedonia or to Greece on the Mediterranean. It was, it was a really key location. It was a big um, trade center, but it was a really important city to Rome. And so the values of Rome, including the worship of Caesar, took preeminence in this city. So politically, it was very Roman. What about spiritually? This is where Acts chapter 16 comes into play. It gives us a picture of what it was like in Corinth. We're told by Luke in Acts 18 that after this, after the events of chapter 17, Paul, he, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because, don't miss this, Claudius, who's Claudius? He's the Roman emperor, right? The Caesar emperor, I think was his title, because the leader of Rome had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. They had been blamed for some things, and so the leadership, the political power, said, you all have to leave. I don't want you in my, in my town. And so they left. Paul came to them. He came to Aquila and Priscilla, and being of the same occupation, stayed with them and worked. What was their occupation? They were tent makers by trade. Isn't that interesting? You ever think about that? Paul had a trade. He had a, he had a, he had a skill that he could do. He could, he could make tents out of goat's hair cloth. They would weave goat's hair together and make this material. Doesn't it sound really soft and fragrant? Yeah? Okay. Sounds heavy to me, too. Anybody who camps, you know, can you imagine... But that's what they did. They made tents, and they were, there was a need for them. And so that was their trade as well. And he reasoned in the synagogue every sa Sabbath day. So six days a week, he was building tents to make, provide for him, his occupation. And then on the Sabbath, he would reason, persuade both Jews and Greeks. He would use the Sabbath day to do that. And then eventually, Silas and Timothy, two of Paul's team, came down from Macedonia. They came to him, and Paul was, they came across to Corinth, and Paul was occupied now with preaching the message and solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. You getting a picture here? This is, the, this is how the church in Corinth, this is the heritage, the spiritual heritage of Corinth, the church in Corinth. But when they resisted, when the Jews resisted and they blasphemed, when they denied that Jesus was God when they resisted the message of the gospel and they blasphemed by saying that Jesus is not the Messiah, Paul shook his robe. Okay, little, sorry, rabbit trail, but it's connected to this. It happens as a certain age, and I don't remember what age, and, and if you're younger, you won't understand this, but there's a certain point where you're eating something like a muffin or a cookie, and when you're done, you've got a second meal right here, you know, for later. Okay, who's willing to admit that's happened to them? Okay, Stacy said it happened to Nate. He's not willing to say it, but she, you know. So just picture Crumb, you know, that's, he's symbolically saying, um, the folds of his robe, he's shaking out the dust. He's shaking out the crumbs. He's showing them that he's done. And that's what you do when you're done, right? When you look down, you go, oh, wow. Now, I'm not going to ask how many eat them, because that's gross. But most of us just go, right? And we... And we we shake him out. He shook his robe and he told them, your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there 
and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. And then we're told that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, where he, Paul was ministering, he must have heard Paul's message and was exposed to it. He believed the Lord along with his whole household. And here's, here's the spiritual climate. Here is the heritage of the church in Corinth. Many of the Corinthians living in that moral situation and that political situation, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, they believed and they were baptized. By the way, I think I failed in my talking earlier that we're going to have baptisms next Sunday. So if you want, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've not publicly proclaimed that to your family, to your friends, to your church, to the world, come see me afterwards this morning and we'll, we'll prepare to baptize you next Sunday outside in the courtyard in, in very cold water. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard Paul's message about Jesus, they believed and they publicly, that's why it, it's critical to understand, in the climate of that city, what all that was going on, all the values that were present, they publicly proclaimed that they were a disciple of Jesus Christ. Thank you. I believe that was Dennis. Thank you. So join me now in 2 Corinthians, back to 2 Corinthians. We're at chapter 2, verse 5, and we're picking it up. What's it like to live in Corinth? In Corinth? I hope that stirred a little bit in your imagination, and you can do more study on that if you want to. But if you come back with me to 2 Corinthians, this letter, chapter 2, verse 5, Paul continues his letter. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. The punishment, the penalty that has been inflicted by the majority, by the body in Corinth, the punishment that's been inflicted by the majority is sufficient. Literally, it's enough. We'll see that it has done its purpose. It has completed its purpose. The punishment, the penalty, the sanctions inflicted by the majority, by the body of Christ, the church in Corinth, is sufficient for that person. And as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort. Forgive and comfort. This word forgive is sprinkled throughout our text this morning. And every time you see it, it's the same word. It means to freely give. You should forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm, confirm publicly your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, and he's making a reference back to the first letter that we have. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. If you forgive, if you freely give, if you forgive anyone, I do too. For what I have forgiven, what I have freely given, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage. You listening? I have done this, this thing that he just described, this giving of forgiveness, this writing of the letter, I've done so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We could spend the rest of our time together just talking about that, couldn't we? We'll talk a little bit about it. But let me, let me make some statements that I want, some conclusions, 
some thoughts that I want to make sure. If you're taking notes, write these down. And here's the first one. If you're not taking notes, take notes. Write this down. Put it somewhere in your thinking that you can come back to it. Satan loves division. He loves division. He loves to divide and conquer. We can go to the letter that Peter wrote where he describes your enemy is like a lion. And I've seen lions. I'm so, it's just, it, it just it gives me goosebumps even thinking about it. I've seen lions a few feet away on the Serengeti and I've been up close to them where I see the, the size and, and they, they, they're very lazy animals. When they yawn, their teeth are exposed. And I've seen up close what they the capacity that they have i've never actually seen them kill but what we know from observing them the way animals hunt is they separate what they perceive to be the weakest the most isolated from the herd and then they devour they destroy and peter says he has knowledge of this he says your enemy our enemy satan does the same thing it's why he loves division. The more he can divide, the more he can isolate, and the more he can devour. Now the reference here to this person is found in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a man in Corinth doing a horrible thing in the church. You can read about it there. He was doing a horrible... In fact, Paul says, the people in Corinth don't even live this way. And here's this man living this way, practicing this behavior, and you're letting him do it in the church. Stop. Confront him. Put sanctions on him. Penalties on him. He says, quit embracing this. Quit allowing this to happen. Turn him over to Satan. That's what he says. Isolate him so that his soul might be rescued. But the same picture. And now here, he, clearly this man has repented. And Paul says, now you need to love him back. You need to encourage him. It's had its effect. He has repented. And now you need to welcome him back. And he says, I wrote this. I'm going to suggest both these letters. I wrote this to test your obedience. To see if you would be obedient in confronting and standing for the truth. And would you also, that you would also be obedient in forgiving and restoring? Satan loves division. Now, sin causes division, right? And it, and it should in the way that God describes it. But church, let's be honest. You know what Satan works through more often even than that? Is unforgiveness and a, and a, and a lack of love between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. He isolates us. We isolate ourselves. Satan loves division. He loves unreconciled relationships. He loves broken relationships between husband and wife, between parents and kids, between brothers and sisters, between brothers and sisters in the family, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Satan loves when there's division between people so that he can isolate he loves to take advantage of our struggle with forgiveness. And I'll just, I'll just be, you don't need to raise your hand, I'll just be a proxy for us. I struggle with forgiveness. I struggle with forgiveness when people don't seem to know they need to be forgiven. I struggle with forgiveness when people have offended me and people have sinned against me and they don't even seem to know it. What's wrong with them? I struggle with forgiveness in, in a lot of ways. 
And Satan loves to take advantage of that. The word here, schemes, is, is, we could translate it in English as purposes. We are not ignorant of Satan's purposes. What is his purpose? His purpose is to divide and conquer. And he'll use anything, no matter how petty, if we allow him to divide and conquer. Paul uses this word forgive multiple times in this text. He talks about himself. He talks about the church. He talks about giving it, receiving it. When we hold back forgiveness, when I'm unwilling to forgive, now catch, listen to this whole sentence. When we hold back forgiveness, we serve Satan's purposes. We do. One of Satan's biggest schemes, one of his biggest tactics is to try to convince you and me as a believer that we're not truly forgiven. Really? God's going to forgive you again? Come on, how many times have you confessed this? Well, it says, I know, but come on. Didn't he take that tactic with Eve in the garden? Can you really trust God? The east from the west, you're fully forgiven? That was enough? It's one of his favorite tactics is to try to get into our heads that you are not forgiven. Jesus alone on the cross and his resurrection is not enough. You need to do something. You need to add to it if you're really going to be forgiven. He loves to do that. He loves to twist forgiveness. And he doesn't just use it in our relationship with God, but he uses it in our relationship with each other. And so when I hold back forgiveness, when God has said to forgive, I serve his purposes so let me ask us a couple of questions along these lines. First of all, who do you need to forgive? This is for our benefit. Do you, you, I, I think you know that, right? Forgiveness is not for the other person's benefit. It's for your benefit to be free. Forgiving is not affirming. Some of us need to hear that. Forgiving is not affirming. And the reason I say that is because we've not forgiven because we're afraid or we're concerned or we don't want to rightfully affirm someone's wrong behavior and so we hold back forgiveness forgiveness is not affirming and forgiving is not ignoring justice but the truth is justice is not in my hands it's in God's hands it's not in human hands it's in God's hands forgiving is not ignoring justice forgiving is shutting the door in Satan's face it's shutting the door in his face and saying, no more am I going to allow you to, to encourage me or to influence me to keep me from forgiving and reconciling. Forgiveness protects us from being taken advantage of by Satan. So who do you need to forgive? Just, I encourage you to write it. Most of us, if we're just going to be honest, at least one name comes right to mind. It might be more for others. Are you with me? We can all probably think of a name that I have not forgiven blank. Who do you need to forgive? Number two, second question, who needs forgiveness from you? Now, this is for their benefit. There might be people in your life, and I've had this in my own experience, where the, the person was struggling and, and maybe even there had been some kind of communication that I forgive them, but they were still holding on to, they still were being racked with their, their failure, their past, and not believing that they were forgiven. And what I've discovered is 
our, for, our receiving forgiveness from God, maybe it shouldn't be, but often it's connected to whether or not we feel like we've been forgiven by people, the body of Christ. Who needs to receive forgiveness from you? Who needs to have that affirmed? And it's just for their benefit. Here in this text, Paul says you need to forgive, and he says you don't just forgive. Listen, let me read it again. You should instead forgive, freely give, grace, and the root of this word forgive is charis or grace. As a result, you should freely give grace, and you should comfort, encourage him. Otherwise, this one will be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to them. Sometimes the forgiveness that we need to give is that we need to go to that person and we need to confirm our love for them. You with me? So I've said it a bunch of times before. Well, we all know about the married couple that went to counseling, right? And the wife claimed that the husband told, never says that he loves her and the counselor didn't believe it. And so he asked the husband, is it true? And he says, yes. When we got married, I told her I loved her and I'd let her know if it ever changed. Is that good enough, ladies? Is that good enough, gentlemen? No, it needs to be communicated over and over and over. And this is one of those expressions that needs to be communicated, principles that needs to be communicated over and over and over. Who do you need to forgive? Who needs forgiveness from you? And thirdly, we are a community, and I want to introduce a word to our, our focus of, what, what are we talking about here? We're talking about renovation, right? Remember, we've talked about renovating the kitchen. Let me throw another word into it. We're a community that is renovated by forgiveness. By forgiveness. You tracking with that? The community, if you want to describe the community of Crossroads family, you might be new here, you might have been here a long time, and we just need to be reminded. If you want to capture what this community is all about, it's not this building, it's not the, 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 you know, the tools that we have, it's not even the location it's that we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. That is the bedrock of this community. If it's not, let's change it because that's what it needs to be built on. We are all forgiven by Jesus Christ through faith in what he's done. Is that not what that's about? Did you think that was just about death? No. It's more than, it is about death. It is about sacrifice. It's about the cost of Forgiveness, right? God didn't just go, oh, let's see. Okay. you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. No, Jesus went to the cross and he gave his life. He who had no sin became sin for me. He took on himself the penalty of sin and unforgiveness so that I might be forgiven. That's the only reason I'm forgiven, friends. There's nothing else on the table are you with me? There's nothing I bring to the table. It's what he brings to the table. And he says, you are forgiven. Eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. We are a community that is renovated. We are in the process of renovation by forgiveness. Listen to how Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. It's where we started this morning, right? Inviting the Holy Spirit to come and do what he wants to do. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. You are his. You've been adopted into the family, and the Holy Spirit's presence is proof of that adoption. 
So all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you. And all malice. Wow, that's negative. Well, here's the positive. Be kind and compassionate to one another. What does it look like to be kind and compassionate to one another? What's the next word? Forgiving one another just as God forgave you in Christ. God forgive us for forgetting that our identity is rooted in forgiveness. My identity is rooted in forgiveness. You can say whatever you want to say about me. You can find lots of things to describe me good and bad. More bad than good, maybe. But you could put all kinds of labels on me. You could say, you could call me all kinds of things, and, and they would probably be true. A child of God. A knucklehead, my uncle used to call me. You could just come with all... But, but here's, the, here's the one thing. Here's the one aspect of my identity that everything else grows out of. You guys... I've been forgiven. I have been forgiven. There is nothing sweeter than that. Gentlemen, married, long time, ever uh, needed to get forgiveness from your wife? Well, Jan's shaking her head harder than Jim is. Jim, you better have a conversation. You ever had to get forgiveness from your wife, gentlemen? How sweet, I know, brother. How sweet is it when your wife looks at you and says, I forgive you. Did you hear that? Right? There's this, there's this, and, and so I'm, I'm Becky's husband. You can put that title on me, but more accurately, you could say, I'm forgiven by Becky. Every day. We have this relationship because she's willing to forgive me, and I'm willing to forgive her. I have a relationship with Almighty God, and I'll spend eternity with Him because He has forgiven me for my sin. We're a community renovated by forgiveness. So shouldn't that be predominant in our relationships and interacting with each other? From our marriages to our families, your teenage kids. We got any teenagers in here? Parents, forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And teenagers, young people, towards your parents, forgiveness, Forgiveness, forgiveness. It's the bedrock of our identity. It's the, it's, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. I love this quote by G. Campbell Morgan. Love never slights holiness, but holiness never slays love. That's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Love never slight, love never looks, overlooks holiness and the need to be holy. There was sin in this man's life and they overlooked it and they allowed it and they accepted it. Love and oh, because we love. No, love never slights holiness. It never minimizes holiness. But holiness, and they're not conflicting with each other, holiness never slays love. The mercy, the forgiveness, the kindness that we're to show one another. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. If God is for us, who is against us? Who, what does it matter who's against us? He did not even spare. Guess what? That's the word that's forgiven our text. Freely give. Let me read it that way. He, God, did not even, did God not freely give his own son? 
He did not even spare his own son. He was, not, he was willing to freely give his own son and offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him, with Christ, grant us everything? See, God has modeled forgiveness for you and me. No? Have you not tasted of his forgiveness in your life? I certainly have. God models for us what it looks like. Verse 12. Join me in verse 12. When I came to Troas, he continues, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, the Lord opened a door for me there in that city, but I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. But I said goodbye to them and I left for Macedonia. Paul longed, Paul had come to Troas hoping to reconnect with Titus and the way this fits in is that Paul, remember Paul is describing or he's recounting with the church in Corinth why he hadn't come. In fact, all the way through chapter 7, it's in chapter 7, verses 5 through 7 of this letter that we finally get a little more details and you can mark that down and read that. We'll get there in a, in a, in a month or so. But he really had come looking for Titus and when he didn't find Titus there, he left the open door. That's significant. He left the opportunity and he went over to Macedonia, to Greece. Verse 14, but thanks be to God, as he's reflecting on that moment, looking for Titus, and he comes to Greece, he says, thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and through us he spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God... You need to know what your identity is. We're going we're gonna to dip into that for a few minutes. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we're an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, we are an aroma of life leading to life. Wow. Are you with Paul? Because look at his next statement. He just, he, the Holy Spirit just helped him articulate this in the letter. But then he says, wait a minute. Who's sufficient for this? Who can do this? Who's competent enough for this, to be this aroma for Christ? For we are, we're not like the many who are marketing or literally watering down the gospel for their own profit. We're not like all those other teachers that are marketing God's message for their own benefit, their own profit. No, we're the opposite. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. At the end there, he's just making it clear. This is not about me, church. It's not about my, my capacity, my wisdom, my expertise. This is about Jesus Christ. This is about the message of the gospel. It's about this understanding that why are we here? We are here to smell. Now turn to the person next to you and say, in love, you smell. Okay. We're here to smell. But no, because, seriously, the word aroma that he keeps using all except one. It means odor. It means odor. The only difference is when he says for God, to God, we are the fragrance. He uses a different word, which means a sweet smell. All the other ones are, are neutral. They can be good or bad. But when he describes who we are to God, he says, no, we are the fragrance. We are the sweet smell of Christ. Are you confused? What in the world? I'm told to stink for Jesus. Okay, yeah, okay. Let's unpack it a little bit. He says, for some, you're the smell of death. Those that are perishing, for others, you're the smell of life. How can that my smell be so differently received? 
Well, John chapter 3 tells us anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he or she has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. See, the smell, the reason we smell different to different people is because it's the condition of their, their heart. We talk about the ears of our heart. How about the nose of our heart? You know, the fragrance that they, the taste that they get when they're around us. Romans chapter 6 says it this way, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You see, the, the message of the gospel is going to pull one of those two responses, right? Your life, my life, living by faith, living out the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to have one of those two effects on people. It's going to stink or it's going to be a sweet smell depending on the person's heart. So let me close with these questions. And I told you we would talk about these as we go through the series. Number one, who are we in Christ? Now again, if you're not writing down, I encourage you to write, somehow make note of this, because we're going to build this picture. Who are we in Christ? Can you imagine the word that I want to use this morning? We are, for, for the disciples, good, but we are forgiven. We are forgiven. Are we not? We are forgiven. You want to know who you are in Christ? If you are in Christ, you are forgiven because of Christ. Number two, who are we to Christ? Paul shared this picture. He says, he, God is so good to just parade us around. That's the word he used. And now he, he used a, a word that described the victory parade of when the Roman armies would come back to Rome and they would have a celebration. And they would light incense and it would have this smell. Mm, just like you know, going to the state fair. You, you know what I'm talking about? There's a smell, right? And it's, and it's good and bad, right? There's the good food, the popcorn, everything fried, but then there's the animal. Anyways, there, there's a, oh, there's smells. They remind you. And so incense was burned. So to the Roman citizens and to the army, this smell would be associated with victory and Rome's expanding. But there were other people there that were smelling this incense. And you know what they were smelling? I got conquered. I'm a slave. I'm being sold into slavery. Oh, what is that smell? And that would be, you, you tracking with Paul's picture? Who are we to Christ? We're his victory parade. You are his victory parade. Think about that. As you're living your life from Monday through Saturday, and even Sunday when we're together, you to him are to be his victory parade. Your life of forgiveness, your life of being forgiven by Jesus is to be a victory parade for other people to see and say, wow, Forgiveness is possible? That's what forgiveness looks like? That's freedom? Amen. The victory of forgiveness over guilt and death makes us displays of his grace and love for all to see. And then finally, who are we for Christ? We are the aroma of forgiveness. Meyer says it this way, it is the breath, breath and fragrance of a life hidden with Christ in God and deriving its aroma from fellowship with him. Wrap the habits of your soul in the sweet lavender of your Lord's character. What's he saying? He's saying, be like Jesus, and you will give off the aroma of Jesus. I have, I have always been, um, I've always worn cologne. I just, I just far back, I remember being a kid and wanting to wear cologne. Avon, anybody remember Avon? Okay, high school. Yeah, Avon and the little. Anybody remember the glass cars and the? 
I'm so old. Anybody, you know what I'm talking about? Those little, okay, some of you do. Okay, good. All right. I've just always wore cologne. And when um, we started having grandkids, I loved to hold babies. I'd love to just hold my grandkids and just talk to them, sing to them, and just hold them. And every time I'd give the baby back to mom, I'd hear, oh, oh you, smell like, you smell like papa. You smell like dad. How did that happen? It happened because that baby and I spent time together intimately. You want to give off the fragrance of Jesus? Then you got to spend time with him. You got to be close with him. The command, the instruction, the identity, who we are for him is we are to go from this place and we go out and we are to smell like Jesus. We are to smell like forgiveness. My life should have a fragrance of forgiveness. And the way that'll happen is if I'm willing to spend time with him and his fragrance of grace and mercy and forgiveness gets on me. And then I go out and I live it. You with me? To smell like Jesus. All right. Let's, um, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm not going to pray, but I'm going to ask you just to collect your thoughts and, and not be distracted by anything else for just a moment. We're going we're gonna to watch a, a video as soon as I'm done, and it's going to remind us of the moment before us. This is a moment for us to respond to God. We're going to sing. We're going to lift our voices, and I pray that what comes out of our mouth is an honest reflection of what's in our heart. But we're going to sing. We're going to worship with song. And you'll be invited. You're, the table after this video, and we begin to sing, the Lord's table, the four tables in this room will be open. And you'll be invited, you're invited when we begin to sing. There's going to be people in the back at the tables, and they're there because they want to pray alongside you, with you, and for you. Part of your worship this morning, part of your response may need to be going back to those tables and being prayed with and prayed for.